You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. Open up with me to Matthew chapter 15. Would you open there with me? If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass you a Bible so that you can walk through this passage with us. Uh, with a Bible in your hands. Last week, Brian Sumner was teaching. It was fantastic. In fact, two weeks ago, it was Austin who was teaching. So if you just visited us in the last two weeks, you're going to be maybe severely disappointed that I'm the primary teacher in this community. I mean, I hear that all the time. People show up. It's a guest teacher. And, oh, I love that. That was amazing. This is our home church. And then they find out, like, I'm the main teacher. And they're like, oh, that's still good. All right. We can, we can stay here, maybe. But I love that about our team teaching model because everybody from Austin to Brian to myself, again, we're just trying to rely on what the Word of God is saying. And he walked us through Matthew chapter 15, this, this confrontation with the religious leaders where they were criticizing Jesus for not washing his hands appropriately before eating. And that was a tradition of those Jewish leaders. And Jesus actually turned the tables on them. I said, you know what you guys do? You spend all your time talking about these traditions that you've created And in doing so, you hold them in higher regard than the word of God. You're nullifying the word of God for the sake of your traditions, your human rules. And it's such a good gut check for us to look at a passage like that in a world like the one that we're living in today. Because there's so many political movements and social movements, and we've got all these thousands of years of theological tradition that we're carrying as Christians. And unconsciously, maybe some of us are carrying those traditions to a heights and higher than what the Word of God actually says. Jesus is real clear. we got to make sure we're leaving everything else as secondary alongside what He Himself has said. Now, He's going to say some things. He's going to reveal some things in this passage, Matthew chapter 15, which are going to reckon with some of those Jewish traditions all over again. And it's going to happen through a really interesting episode here. Jesus is going to be acting in a way that kind of bothers us as he engages with this Canaanite woman who is asking for help. And what I want to say on that front as we read it, because you're going to be a little bit shocked, maybe some of you, is that Jesus teaches in parables, right? I introduced that, you know, he's speaking in these cryptic sayings. You've got to think about it. You've got to chew on it to really understand the fullness of what he's trying to communicate a lot of times. But he doesn't just teach in these parables. He also creates living parables, Situations that are cryptic, including, you know, inviting Peter to walk on the water and then letting him sink when he takes his eyes off Jesus. That's like a living parable that Peter got to experience. A cryptic situation. And I think you'll see the same thing as we move through this scripture this morning. It's a cryptic situation. And Jesus is ultimately trying to communicate the inclusive global mission that he's on, even as he postures himself in pretty much the most exclusive way imaginable. Let's read here. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. We're going to read this episode and then the episode that follows it because it ties in. Verses will be on the screens. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, 
Help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. That's because they're Gentiles, just like this Canaanite woman. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. For they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Don't they remember Matthew 14? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. So the narrative here opens with Jesus withdrawing to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Hey, this is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is in Gentile territory. This is not a region the Jews would have been friendly with. Tyre is spoken of in the Old Testament with a lot of prophetic judgment leveled against it. And then this woman who comes up, she's a Canaanite woman. So she's among one of the most hated people groups for the Jews. If you'll recall, Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. And when they got to the Promised Land, its inhabitants were partially the Canaanites. And God said, I want you to wipe them out. And the Jews didn't. The Israelites didn't at that point. They let them live. Some of them live. And they became this irritant on God's people, both militarily and spiritually, leading God's people away from the pure worship of him. So when we get to this scene where Jesus is interacting with this woman, we've got to understand that we're talking hundreds and thousands of years of historical and ethnic and political and spiritual hatred between these two groups of people. And Jesus seemingly plays to the spirit of bigotry I'm talking about, which is what makes this passage so unsettling. It makes it a tough pill to swallow the way that he's acting. Here you have her crying out, Lord, son of David, and of course these are two terms of reverence. Apparently even the people in this region have heard the rumors about Jesus the Messiah, and so she's using these terms to refer to Jesus, and she's saying, Lord, son of David, Messiah, Savior God, King, help me. I've got a daughter who is demon-possessed. You can imagine through the way that she's reaching out, she's tried everything. She's got no other recourse except to go out into the wilderness. He's not in a town. He's out in the wilderness. And she's joining him out there to try to receive some mercy. And the text simply tells us that Jesus, in response, was silent. Silent. Now, have you ever felt this in prayer? Have you ever felt this in your spiritual life? That you're encountering a difficult time? 
and you cry out to God and all you get is silence in return? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, man, I'm so in need. I've been praying about this over and over and over again and I just feel like God's not even there. Or if he is there, he's not going to respond to me in any way. If you've ever felt that way, you're in good company in the scriptures, not just because you're in the company of this Canaanite woman, because you're in the company of prophets, great prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 8 says, Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Job resigned himself. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer. When I stand up, you only look at me. Paul said, three times I pleaded with God to remove this thorn that was in my flesh. He's asking over and over and over again. And when God finally responds, he doesn't even give him what he asked for initially. David wrote, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. But I find no rest. And even Jesus, Mr. Silence himself in this passage when he's on the cross, he quotes that same psalm of David, the first verse when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if you ever felt like God's been silent when you presented a need, well, you're in very, very good company. There are plenty of times I was out in Kansas in Bible school and I'm going, why am I here? Why did you bring me here, God? What is this about? And I would go out to this lakeside. And I'd be all alone, but basically anywhere you go in Kansas, you're all alone. <laughs> and it's not the kind of alone that you want. You know, you think, oh, going by the lakeside today by myself, that'd be real nice. Get a little peace and quiet. Too much quiet. Too much quiet back then. It was an oppressive silence as I'm crying out, God, why am I here? And I felt the exact same way. He's there, but he's only looking at me. I stand up, but he's just looking at me. Even in the last year, this isn't something that happened to me 15 years ago. We're in the middle of COVID. I'm getting emails. I'm seeing what's going on in the community, what's going on in the nation. I'm saying, God, how are you going to lead us through this? What's next? Nothing. Silence can be a powerful tool of communication. In this passage, I think we perceive it to be rather negative, right? That it sort of conveys this total disregard for her needs. Now, we know better than that as we continue reading in the narrative. But silence is a skill that's employed by counselors. I took a few counseling classes. I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm not a counselor. I took a few classes, and that was one of the skills that we learned. I went to a counselor for a year and a half. There was a lot of silence. As the silence pulls out, it draws out someone speaking, right, from their heart. They don't like the discomfort of those moments, so they just keep going and going and going. I say 95% of the time, my counselor was silent. That was really expensive silence. <laughs> Extremely expensive silence. And might I say, also very effective, too. I had a very good experience. But how Jesus uses it here is likely multifaceted. We don't fully understand, but it raises an important observation regarding our God, that he is dynamic, He's not static. He's not fixed, you know, in just one mode and one way of relating to us. He's a person, and he relates to us as a person. In different ways and different situations to different people. He responds differently. Jesus isn't the same in every scene. 
I think we lose that characteristic of God, and I think we sometimes get very bored in our spiritual life because we take you know, all this theology from the last several thousand years and hear what pastors and preachers are saying, and we always play up sort of these immutable qualities of God. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, and that's all true. But you lose a sense when you think about only that all the time, that he's a person. God is a person with a personality, and he relates to people. You and I. And as a person, he can use silence in very powerful ways to teach us and guide us through our lives. This woman becomes the example for how to respond to the silence that we feel from God because she's persistent. She keeps pressing in rather than giving up. She keeps on crying out all the more, and the disciples are annoyed. They've retreated to this area to get some peace and quiet, to rest up from all the tension. And then this woman is just going off, on and on and on about what she needs. It's like a car alarm that no one's silencing. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever been in that situation. You're sitting outside at a coffee shop or something, and there the alarms go for 10 minutes, and then you finally realize it's yours. And you're not going to tell anyone. You know, oh, I'm glad they got it. You know, it's like she's this car alarm going off, and they can't silence her. They can't get her to stop. And, and, and the disciples, they go to Jesus. They say, just send her away. Get her out of here, Jesus. And what they're really asking for is for Jesus to fulfill her request. And, and it's not because it's coming from this place of compassion, like, oh, now we really feel for this woman. They are so annoyed and so frustrated. They say, Jesus, just give her what she wants. This is a skill my kids have perfected. They cry and they wail until one of us caves. But Jesus doesn't cave. He replies with the expectation that nearly all Jews had at this time in history, that he, the Messiah, had only come to minister to Israel. Healing this woman fell outside his job description according to the perceptions of his countrymen and countrywomen at this point in time. But the woman doesn't let up. She's exasperated. She kneels before Jesus and moves to make what could be a final appeal. She just says, Lord, help me. And Jesus finally responds to that impassioned plea, but ugh, it's still tough to swallow. He said, it's not right for us to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. You know, we have a hard time making this association here in Orange County. We take offense to this comparing a dog to a child. How could you demean a dog that way? <laughs> Such is the love for animals in our culture. But in that ancient world, dogs were dogs. So Jesus is saying something that effectively sounds very bigoted, maybe even racist, this idea that you can't take this ministry that is meant for the children of Israel and give it to the animals, that is, the Gentiles, who are far from God. Now, the woman doesn't flinch at the term or the tone of Jesus. She's rubber and he's glue. Whatever he says bounces off her and sticks to him. He says, all right, that's fine. But even the dogs need to eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. Her response is startling. It's unsettling for a lot of us as modern readers. First of all, the idea that Jesus could refer to a woman as a dog, 
That's not just, you know, an off-color comment. That is like, that is demeaning. That is, in 2021, something that will get you canceled. And not only does she accept the term, she utilizes it in her response. And I think that's frustrating for some of us today because we think, oh, she has no dignity. She has no self-respect or self-worth that she doesn't push back on it. We cry foul in this situation, but she speaks a truth that applies to all of us. Because who of us aren't in that same position? Who of us is better than a beggar when it comes to approaching the table of our master. You know, in our world today, and self-talk, positive self-talk, and pride, and self-sufficiency, that's the false gospel a lot of people are living by as people attempt to proclaim and prove their worth to everyone around them. Dependency and humility, though, as evidence in this woman, it's not just for her because she's a woman, that that's the right thing she should be doing. Dependence and in, in humility is not the only thing that she should be doing because she's a, she's a Gentile. She's outside the people of God. Humility and dependence is the answer and posture for every single person who would want to encounter God and find their worth hidden in him. Through her humility and dependence, we arrive precisely where I believe Jesus wanted us to get the whole time. Seeing the great faith of this woman and a declared healing over her daughter. Now, what we have here in this passage is a gotcha lesson for the Jewish, the primarily Jewish audience that would be working through the Gospel of Matthew. Because as they're going along, all of their thoughts and traditions are being voiced through the character of Jesus. All the ideas about the Messiah, that the Messiah was coming to them exclusively, and he was going to establish their nation, and they're going to defeat all their enemies. Jesus is playing that part as you work through the early part of the narrative. And as they're going along, they're going, oh yeah, Jesus is on our team again and again and again. And then you get to that great reversal where Jesus tees up the Canaanite woman to be the teacher about what faith is actually about. And you get to the end and you find out, hey, wait a minute. My mind is blown. Jesus' mission is way bigger than just our one nation. Jesus is actually on team Canaanite woman. That original audience would have been shocked. And wouldn't you believe it, this Canaanite woman, this so-called dog in the passage, gets an affirmation that no one else gets except maybe secondhand, the Roman centurion earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, that she is displaying great faith through her persistence and dependence and humility on him. It's all the more weighty, that, that term that she's expressing great faith, when you realize just a couple scenes ago, we've got the chief disciple, Peter. He's walking on water before he starts sinking, and Jesus refers to him as little faith. And he's referred to as little faith because he took his eyes off Jesus, whereas she never did. She never took her eyes off Jesus. And it's she who reveals Jesus' ministry will be for friend as well as for foe. 
Jesus' ministry will be for friend as well as foe. The next scene proves that that was his M.O. That wasn't her idea where she appealed to Jesus and he's like, mm, okay, I've had it all wrong. I guess I'll do some ministry for the Gentiles now. Now, that was his heart from the very beginning. He didn't equate the Gentiles' worth as that you know, akin to dogs, for he had compassion on them, compassion on them and the most significant needs that they were facing as well as the simplest needs that they had. And that's why you have this repeat of the feeding of the 4,000. We're reading through it, and you're going, wait a minute, are we just rehashing something we've already read? Is Andrew lost in the, in the passages? No. He fed the 5,000 in chapter 14, but he's feeding the 4,000 here in chapter 15. It's a different audience. It's a Gentile audience, which proves that all these different people are going to be coming to him, Jew and Gentile alike, and they all have a seat at the table. And then they come looking for just table scraps that are going to fall from the master's dining room. They're going to be satisfied. They too, alongside the Jews, are going to have their fill. The word that's used here in the Greek, it refers to somebody being fattened like a calf. Are we getting this, guys? Are we getting the significance of this for our world today? Are we getting that the Jews thought that Jesus was coming to restore the nation of Israel to its former greatness and lift it up and propped it up so that it would be able to vanquish and destroy all of their cultural enemies? That was their expectation of what the good news was all going to be about. And that the same sort of message is happening today in America. That there's still people who are fusing the gospel of Jesus and Jesus' primary mission in this world as being an American mission to reestablish the greatness of America according to what it was through our founding fathers so that we can be lifted up among all the nations and we can vanquish our foes. And if you're viewing it in that way, you are missing the way bigger picture of what Jesus is doing in this world. Way, 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 way bigger than our one country. Jesus came to establish his kingdom, which would be comprised of souls the world over. American friend and American foe are going to be involved in that one kingdom of God. And if you don't have that as your number one, then you may be guilty of doing the very thing that we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 15, letting a tradition get on par or even higher than what God has revealed and what he said. Love this nation. Love this nation. Pray for God's plans for it, but realize there is a much bigger thing that's happening here. And I can't wait for the day where all these traditions of all these divided nations and all the bigotry is just melted away and we're at that great banquet together with all our brothers and sisters, Canadian brothers and sisters, Mexican brothers and sisters, Russian brothers and sisters, Chinese brothers and sisters, Iraqi, Jewish, Kenyan, on and on and on, everybody gathered through faith in Jesus and everybody eating together and finding themselves satisfied. You know, we come to that table, we all come to that table as beggars, as dogs, and we leave that table as children, fattened like calves. 
That's what the grace of the cross is for all of us, friend and foe alike. If you'll take the communion elements that are there on your seats. Communion is representative, yes, 100% of what Jesus did on the cross. It's also representative of that great banquet of the kingdom of God that's going to be made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. That's everything I'm sharing with you. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. I'm doing something bigger. I'm doing something new. In my blood which is poured out for you. Receive this meal this morning. Receive the invitation of Jesus to join him in this great banquet through the grace and mercy provided on the cross. And let me pray for us. Jesus, we come to you. Heavenly Father, we come to you. You're eternal, you're all-knowing, you're all-powerful. And yet you're a person, you relate to us, people who are made in your image. What a dynamic road we walk with you, Jesus. And yet we know this, that you've given us great invitation to this banquet that you have prepared in your kingdom. Lord, I pray we would receive these Invitations you're always extending to us to walk in your will and your ways with humility and dependence and persistence. We want to be a people of great faith. Great faith. We admit that oftentimes we find ourselves like that chief disciple there, Peter. We see the wind and the waves. We take our eyes off you. We begin to sink. Lord, help us to be like this Canaanite woman who never took her eyes off you. She pressed in. She persisted. She got on her knees. She said, Lord, help me. Well, that's the sort of faith that we want to characterize this community in all humility and dependence. It wasn't for her because she was far from you, God, because she was a woman. It's for every single one of us that wants to encounter you, that wants to join you in this feast. Lord, help us to see this bigger thing that you're doing in the world. Help us not get caught up in just the traditions of people, human teachings, human rules about human realities. Yes, we have a role to play in this country. Yes, we have a role to play in this world. But Lord, keep in our minds, first and foremost, what you're doing in the kingdom of God, how you're establishing it, and how you want to use us in all humility and dependence to reach friend as well as foe. see them all join to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.